Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to the shrinking of the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month, we welcome Brian McLaren, author of several books, including A New Kind of Christian, A Generous Orthodoxy, Everything Must Change, We Make the Road by Walking, The Great Spiritual Migration, and his latest, Faith After Doubt, Why Your Beliefs Stopped Working and What to Do About It. In short, Brian is super smart. (laughs) He's one of these people who thinks outside of the box, but more than that, he's a true prophet. He decodes what we're living right now and casts vision for what's coming. Now, we taped this conversation before the outcome of the election was known. As you listen to our conversation today, the world knows that Joe Biden is now president-elect Joe Biden, and Senator Kamala Harris is now vice president-elect Kamala Harris. You know that now, but there is much we still don't know. Most of all, we don't know how white men will respond to losing the most brazen protector of white patriarchy and supremacy that we've ever had in the Oval Office. So I knew who I wanted to talk to. I invited Brian McLaren here because he's a white man who has and is doing his homework. So I asked him to come talk with us on Freedom Road about white men. What can we expect from them on the other side of this election? And what spiritual reformation will require of them in the coming age? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. So, Brian, I'm so excited to have you here. When I thought about who could really dig in deep with the conversation that I really want to have right now, you were it. I honestly, I, it's like, I literally, I couldn't think of another white man that I wanted to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> because I want to talk about two major things. One is on the broader picture, not just white men, but in the broader picture, given this election result and We are, by way of transparency, we are having this conversation the Friday before the actual election day. So we don't know what the result will be. And we also don't know yet what Trump will do, like what the the president will do in response to the the, the result. We also don't know what the Russians are planning. We have a a sense (laughs) that they're definitely up to something. Just last night, they started breaking up hospital internet capacities up in the upper Northwest. And so that was really scary. So when we think about the next steps for our nation, like what is it we need to be preparing for? And then the second thing that I want to talk about today 
which is actually even more burning on my heart, is what, given what we've experienced over the last four years and where we are right now as a nation, what is the spiritual transition, transformation, formation, reformation that needs to happen in the souls of white men? Well, those are sure good topics. And it is a little strange to think that folks will be listening to this after what will probably be one of the most momentous and traumatic 24-hour periods in in memory. Uh, Because no matter what happens, we're all going to feel a lot of anxiety. And the scale of horrible things that could happen, is just so wide. It is. And even if the outcome comes that you and I are both hoping for, Mm -hmm. uh, we still have a lot of work to do. And I wouldn't be surprised Mm -hmm. if we don't have weeks, if not months, of violent repercussions, if that's the case. So we have we have a lot to talk about. Here. Yeah, we do. So can you start with your story? Like, where have you literally been over the last year? What has your work been in this election season over the last year? And, and how does that give you perspective to speak on this? Sure. Well, I do a lot of, I write books and I do a lot of speaking, especially to clergy. Mm-hmm. And my last speaking engagement was uh, the first week of March. So Apart from just a little road trip with my wife up to visit two of our children, I've just been home these last months. I I thought that would mean that I would maybe get a bit of a rest, but I've actually, you probably feel the same way. I've been busier stuck at home than than I would have been when I was on the road. Mm -hmm. I think that's, there are probably many levels to that, but one level is that the fact that I'm not traveling and the fact that I feel, as you do, I know, Lisa Sharon, that this election is so monumental, there's just this feeling that it's very hard to relax because you always think, is there something else I could write? Is there something else I could tweet? Is there something else I can organize? So, uh, So I've been doing a lot of writing, as I often do. But one of the things I've been involved with is an organization called Vote Common Good. And I've had the chance to several things with with Vote Common Good that have been extremely useful. At least I know they've felt useful for me. One is I've done a lot of training of congressional candidates and a few state level candidates as well. But Mm -hmm. Vote Common Good, we realized that we had to help progressive candidates for the Senate and the House learn how to speak better to religious voters. Yeah, and, and I think also, um, I'm sorry, but we talked about this a while ago. That's I right. This is important for you to say, for, for people to understand, that it's not that you're training them what to say, but you're training them in how to communicate about their own faith to the voters. Exactly right? right. You know, it's yeah. it's so funny. You and I have evangelical background mm-hmm. where I, I was taught, you know, and I still, gosh, I can't stand to listen to Christian radio anymore. But when, <laughs> when I do, uh, as a neighbor of mine used to say, for surveillance purposes, um, <laughs> you know, the lies that I hear them say about <laughs> liberals. Liberals oh. are all socialists. They're trying to turn your children into perverts. You know, I mean, it's just ridiculous, right? Mm-hmm. So evangelicals and many conservative Catholics are told these horrible lies, vilifying, mm-hmm. scapegoating lies about Democrats. Mm-hmm. But as a result, for a whole lot of Democratic candidates, all of their interactions with evangelical and Catholic, especially white voters, they're being called baby killers. And, you know, it, mm. and so it's just nothing but hate that they're getting. And so part of what we've done is try to help 
these political uh, aspiring political figures mm-hmm. to understand religious voters and then how to take their message and relate that to voters. Um, yeah. And one part of that work that actually was, you know, the part that I enjoyed most mm. is I've been doing a lot of work on authoritarianism, trying to understand how authoritarianism yes. works. Okay. okay, talk to us about that, for real. And, well, I'll give you a quick summary, because this is mm-hmm. one of the things that I have shared with a whole lot of political candidates, mm-hmm. and it's been helpful for me. And it will still be true after the election, no matter who wins. Wow. And I'm drawing from the work of a really brilliant philosopher named Steve McIntosh, wonderful guy. Mm. He wrote a book called Developmental Politics that I highly recommend. And he talks about four, that we have four electorates. Two of them have traditionally been Democratic. Two of them have traditionally been Republican. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to change his terminology here and make some slight adjustments of this. But we have what we might call the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and the centrist wing. We could call them the liberal, uh, uh, modern liberal electorate. Wait, can I just say very quickly? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Hold, hold, hold that thought. Just to break down for our listeners, when you say modern liberal, because honestly, in the vernacular of yes. progressive versus liberal, liberal is usually thought of as being like the more extreme. But I think the way you're using it is in the classic political sense, meaning yes. institutionalist. Right. Yes, that's exactly okay. right. Exactly right. So, in fact, before I move on, let me just say. One of the things that Steve McIntosh says that I think is deeply insightful and very important to remember in fractious times, especially if we feel any desire to be peacemakers rather than to just win for our side. Right. He says all four of these electorates have very positive values. Now, they they may also have some values that can be turned very negative. But let's take the progressive wing. And that's, for me, the the farthest left wing. This is definitely where I place myself. Progressives, let me just name a couple of their values. One of their values is... We have to protect the earth and especially the climate from a destructive economy that's going to cause havoc for even people living, but especially for future generations. Mm -hmm. Another, we have to face the truth about our past, the past of our nation, the past of our religions, Mm -hmm. including the ugly racism and white supremacy of our past. We have to face the truth. That's a great value, facing the truth, right? Yeah, hello, yeah. And we have to care about economic inequality. When too much wealth is concentrated in too few people, that Mm -hmm. means a whole lot of power is concentrated in those people. Mm -hmm. So we have to, so those are progressive values. Traditional Mm -hmm. liberal values. Mm -hmm. America should be a leader in institutional integrity and democracy. Mm -hmm. We should invest in excellent interstate highways and Mm -hmm. we should invest in great public education and Mm -hmm. we should have solid courts and quality institutions those would be classic liberal values right yeah then comes what steve mcintosh would call he would he calls them fiscally conservative moderns now what's interesting is he's saying that modern liberals and modern conservatives are both modernist in a certain sense yeah but these are, are sort of the centrist Republicans, and they would say things like government should be big enough to do what's necessary, but not too big to become tyrannical and overbearing. Which is what we basically lived with under Bush, Bush both Bushes, and also 
Reagan, although, yeah, I mean, basically all of them tried to shrink the government. That was their whole big thing, shrinking the government. And classic conservatives still believed in government. I think with Newt Gingrich and Karl Rove, something deeply toxic took place. What was that line? Oh, from that creep. I forget his name. I shouldn't say that. But uh, uh, he so glad I'm not thinking of his name. But he said we should shrink government to the size we could drown it in a bathtub. Oh, my uh, God. Northwest. Yeah. I mean, what yeah, a despicable right. thing to say. Mm-hmm. What a privileged, arrogant, ignorant, despicable, dangerous thing to say. But the, mm-hmm. but that's not even true conservatism, right? True conservatism believes in government because they, yeah. they also believe in institutions. And conservatives believe the taxes should be as low as possible. And, but we still uh, need anyway, them. The, yes, but they also value things like quality public schools and good mm-hmm. libraries and things like that. Big value for entrepreneurship also mm-hmm. among conservatives and individual responsibility. Great mm-hmm. value. And then he calls the people on the far right, he called them traditionalists. Mm-hmm. And traditionalists have been the people who in some ways have been, I think, really exploited by Trump. But traditionalists, let me talk about their positive values. And yeah, I'm yeah. going to put these in the most positive way I can. Okay. Traditionalists value hard physical labor. They mm-hmm. see the dignity of the people who have to take a shower at the end of the day instead of at the beginning of the day, right? Oh, okay. Traditionalists understand the value of farming and taking care of soil and the land, right? Mm-hmm. Big thing for traditionalists. And mm-hmm. nobody values farming the way traditionalists at least used to. Mm-hmm. Traditionalists say, we should take care of vulnerable people, especially children, the elderly, and mothers. Can I ask a question before you go into that last? Or maybe yeah, yeah. You know what? Finish up your list, but I have a question I want to interject. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just about done. All, all that's okay. to say. So, and again, it's easy for people like me to say, yeah, but traditionalists are patriarchal and, and that's, you know, but I'm looking for the positive that they believe that Elderly people and children need to be protected and that mothers deserve special respect because motherhood is really hard, right? So I get that. I do have a question though. So here's my question. It sounds like, because when you mention all those things, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that's like so many people of African descent and Latinx descent in the South who are absolutely agrarian. Like they absolutely are farmers. So many black farmers. There's so many Latino farmers who are so close and Native American who are so close to the earth who don't hold their politics, right? So I wonder what it feels like the difference, maybe maybe what is, he doesn't have a racial analysis with his breakdown. Yes. And I wonder what a racial analysis would do. Would it break them out into white traditionalists, right? Well, it's a really good point. And here's, we're getting a bit into, you know, partisan tactics here, but in some ways it was a democratic tactic to say that the Democratic Party wants to find people who work in unions, right? So Uh unions became the place maybe to connect with people who did physical labor, who were electricians or carpenters, right? But they were in a union. So there were ways that the Democratic Party tried to include some traditionalists and some conservatives through different kinds of alliances. Right, okay. Um, But actually, but I think you're right about that, uh, about raising that concern. Oh, and one more for traditionalists. Mm-hmm. Traditionalists, more than anybody else, saw the value of faith communities to build moral character. You see, that's just, 
that's black folk. I mean, that, that's why that's I'm black folk. Like, I mean, come on now. And also Latinos. So, but they are not going to be on the far right spectrum of that spectrum. You know what I mean? They, at least not politically. Yes. Well, that's the interesting thing, because what you could say then is part of the Democratic Party's strategy was to welcome black folks talking about their faith. You'll notice that until really Obama and now Biden, Democrats have given free reign to people of color to talk about their faith, but mm-hmm. white folks didn't talk about it very That's much. That's for real. Right? That's right. That's true. That is true. So it's tricky. It's not simple. And, and Steve McIntosh is very uh, sensitive to all those nuances. Okay. okay. That's Steve McIntosh. Here's what I want to interject. All right. I think what Donald Trump represents, and this goes back to Newt Gingrich and Grover Norquist and a lot of other, to me, very harmful ideas. I think Donald Trump represents authoritarianism. I forget the scholar's name. There's someone who says we have two pandemics happening in the world today, a pandemic of COVID and a pandemic of authoritarianism. And what authoritarians did in the Republican Party through Donald Trump, because we remember how Republicans were horrified by Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. What Donald Trump did is he inflamed authoritarian fear, right? And we can talk about how authoritarianism works. We can come back to that in a minute. Sure, sure. But what he did is he captured conservatives and traditionalists throughout all their values, except authoritarianism. And authoritarianism has only one value, winning over a hated enemy, winning over a hated and feared enemy. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes total sense. Absolutely. But how did he, that's the, the big conundrum is how did he throw out their values when this, these, these values are like, they're in Norman Rockwell. Like, you know what I mean? Like they are, they're so deeply embedded in the image of America, in the image of these people of themselves. How could they go from that to screaming and jeering and almost beating up a black woman at a rally? Like, you know what I mean? Like that. Oh, yeah. That's just really freaking crazy. And, and, and it's scary to me. Scared to a lot of people of a darker hue because these are the same people that some of those people are people we worked with and didn't even realize that was in them. You know what I mean? Yes. Oh, I'm, I'm with you. Well, look, I'll try to summarize this in like one minute. But after World War II, a whole lot of research was done, especially in Europe, mm-hmm. asking the question, how could the Germans swallow Hitler? Right. And there was a whole field of social science research that focused on something called authoritarian followership. And this has been tested in a lot of different countries that about 30% of all populations are easily activated by authoritarian messaging. Well, there you go. And, And isn't that interesting? That's exactly his base. And so it fits so spookily well. Wow. And and so these are people who held different values, but when they got activated, when they got triggered, when the part of their brain that was easily triggered by fear and hate and mm. resentment, when that part got triggered, something in them felt a high. I, I, I don't mean to be crazy, yeah. but they no, felt an orgasmic, like a high, yeah. an, an orgasmic high, an orgasmic high to line up behind a strong man who would make them feel safe and lead them to get revenge on the people who had made them feel ashamed or afraid or anxious. Whoa. Which is why, see, one of the things that's been so disturbing is that 
it feels like the Midwest and Northwest are surprised at the impact of COVID now in their in their cities yes. and their towns. But we all saw it just like three months yes. ago, four months ago in New York City. But they immediately after seeing that, while seeing that actually, because it wasn't even finished, they said, oh, we're opening up our state. No big deal. COVID's nothing, right? So, but they're watching, they're watching yes. trucks be filled with body bags. It's interesting. Like, it feels like it's not only an apathy toward the enemy, but it's actually like a, hey, cool. They At least COVID got him. Like, COVID got him. We didn't have to. That kind of thing. That's, yes. that's how it's no, felt to I, me. I couldn't agree with you more. But now they're starting to see a COVID does, it doesn't discriminate. <laughs> yeah. And this helps explain why for folks... In a certain sense, the ecstasy must be so great. I don't understand it, right? I must not have the right biochemistry for that. Or I've never been triggered in the white way, right way, but uh, white way too. Way too. <laughs> but but the, the pleasure must be so great that they're happy to say, I'm not, they, they don't even say this consciously, but I'm not even thinking about the data about COVID. Yeah, I'm yeah. listening to my authority figure and he's telling me it's a blue state problem. He's telling me we're turning the corner, and I believe everything he says. It's it's a godlike devotion, you know. And this is, of course, how authoritarians work. They 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 only I can fix this. We'll remember that line. It's that kind of authoritarian magic, and this weird kind of codependence between the authoritarian leader and the authoritarian followers. Yeah. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road Podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. We're living in the kinds of times that seed books, blogs, magazine articles, and op-eds that move the world forward. Are words floating in your head looking for a place to land? Do you need a safe space to write and share your work with other writers and receive feedback that helps to hone it, sharpen it, make it even better? Freedom Road is launching an international writing group online. Writers from across the globe will come together on Zoom, making space and writing in each other's presence, but in our living rooms, like good citizens do when we are social distancing. (laughs) Then we're going to share what God poured into the world through us. Your one-year membership can lock in your spot in this international writing community, or you can pay month to month. Follow the link in the show notes on our website at freedomroad.us to register today. So, Brian, as we dive back in here, I'm wondering if you can just help us to understand. Now, given what you just told us about the authoritarian brain and the reality that 30% of, of people in any place are kind of wired for authoritarianism, um, if when triggered or when activated, yeah. given our situation, regardless of who wins, we're going to be dealing with that. So what do we need to be prepared for? 
Yeah. Before I say something about that, let me just also add this. Obviously, Trump is a white figure who exudes white supremacy mm -hmm. and has a certain white authoritarianism that, you know, that he is all about. It's his, mm -hmm. it's his sauce, right? Right. But I just read an article today that some polling is suggesting an uptick in Latino support, especially Latino yes, men. and black. I read that too. And black men. And yes. I think this authoritarianism thing helps explain it. Mm -hmm. There's a certain sense that Trump's message to people of color is, if you will just submit, uh, he would never say it this intelligently, right? But <laughs> if you'll just submit to a 1940s or 1950s style white supremacy, that's what we're going back to. And if you'll just submit to that, right. you can be part of my authoritarian club too. And I will give you all the joy and pleasure of submitting to me too. And I think that helps us understand some of what's going on here. But what's so weird is that when you look at what was happening in those times for my people, for Latinos oh. and for Black folk, I mean, the 1940s, 30s, that was that was the Bracero movement. Like that, that was that was Bracero workers who were being carted across the border and like held in in, in boxcars and made to work the same fields that the enslaved people had just escaped. Yes. You know, and the 50s, that's Emmett Till. Yes. Like that, you know, the 40s. And when I was at, I'm sorry, I just got it. Now you got me all excited. <laughs> when I was with Sister Simone Campbell on, with the nuns on the bus, I was like, I was literally the very first non-nun to be on the, nun, <laughs> on the nuns with the bus. Oh, that's great. It was such an honor, but it was also a real education. We went and we handed out lemonade and did surveys at the, ninth, the 2016 um, uh, Republican convention. And when we did that, we asked them, what is your vision for when it was great? When was it great? And I'll yes. tell you what, Brian, most of them said before the New Deal, before the New Deal. Yes. So that's like 1920s, as in yes. before taxes, before there was yes. taxes, before there was. Yeah. So they don't have any belief in taxes at all. Yes. That was also the height of the race riots all over the country with the white people completely raising to the ground black towns, black Wall Street. Yes the height of yeah. lynchings. It was white terror all over the country in, yes. that, in that time period. That's what blows my mind, is that how can Black men and Latinos want to go back to that? Well, they don't know as much as you do about the history. And, and if you think of it like this, I hate to say it, but you have to think of it like this. For people who feel activated by either resentment, anger, anxiety, that cocktail that makes people feel bad, and then an authoritarian leader comes along and says, trust me, I'll fix it. The ecstasy, the hit, you mm. know, the high of that mm. is super, super enticing. Wow. And the, wow. the relief from, I mean, there's so many dimensions of it. Yeah. But you do kind of lose your mind, right? Like <laughs> when you're in a yeah. mind, you don't have a brain anymore. If you're an ex or anything like that, it's like gone. So that's right. maybe that's it. Maybe that's actually really it. And so this is part of the complexity of this. And, and I don't want to psychologize too much. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. this is the last thing I'll say about this, but mm -hmm. it might also help to remember. I doubt that Donald Trump's father was a very nice guy. Everything I read about him, mm -hmm. he was every bit mm -hmm. as bad as Donald. Yeah. But here's the thing. When you have an authoritarian father and you decide to join his team, mm 
then in a sense, you're inducted into authoritarian psychology. And here's the deal. You, you and I both know this. Mm-hmm. An awful lot of evangelical Christians oh, yeah. are part of authoritarian churches and authoritarian yes. families. And the whole structure, whether it's black, Latino, white, right. of evangelicalism and certain kinds of conservative Catholicism just feeds into that kind of obey daddy, be quiet, do what you're told. And when somebody takes that stern, strict, tough father role with you, it's kind of like it's humiliating, but you know how to play that game. Wow. Oh my gosh. I literally never really thought about it quite that way, especially in terms of for for communities of color, that that might be just familiar. Like just, it's just familiar. And it is familiar actually, because that is exactly how, I mean, most of our communities in the Latino community and also in the black community are patriarchal. It's a, well, that's, I shouldn't say that in the black community, it's matriarchal, but in the black church, it's patriarchal. (laughs) It is right. And then in the Latino community, it's very patriarchal. So you have, you can have those, those tendencies. Okay. So what do we do? What do we do? Yeah. What do we do? (laughs) Well, so I think the first thing we're going to have to realize is that, of course, our listeners are going to know a lot more about the details than you and I know at this moment. That's right. But let's just say this. Whatever happens, Mm -hmm. these 30 to 40 percent of Americans who have never felt as good as they feel right now under Mm -hmm. Donald Trump, some of them are going to adjust. They're going to say, well, okay, our guy lost. I guess he was kind of irritating with all those tweets. And I guess he did fail to bring along other people. Mm -hmm. Some will go along. Um, But there's going to be a group who are just going to fight like crazy. And I'm sad to say this, Lisa Sharon, but Mm -hmm. most of our white evangelical brothers and sisters are going to line up behind the Trump authoritarians. And they've got, you know, this list of of course, Jerry Falwell Jr. now has his own set of problems, but the Franklin Grahams and Robert Jeffresses and then all of these other people, and they're just going to line up behind them. And then what they'll become is they'll just repeat history. It'll be the post-Scopes monkey trials oh, uh, all over again. Really? And this will just be a cycle of resentment and shame and so on. It, uh, although there's a good chance, of course, that Trump will start Trump TV and become even more extreme than Fox News and that mm-hmm. they'll just be back to fight to regain because mm-hmm. people don't give up supremacy easily. It's a very, very strong addiction. Wow. So I think that's just going to stay there. What I think the key conversation that's going to happen mm-hmm. is between what we might call the center right and the center left. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, Mm -hmm. folks who sort of are more far left, like me, are worried, well, don't compromise too much with those guys. But Mm -hmm. if we're going to avoid, I'm going to be frank, I'm just going to say it, if we're going to avoid civil war. That's right. That's right. That's right. The future has to do with a center right and center left. Mm -hmm staying in conversation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, Joe Biden wasn't my first choice, but he, if anybody can succeed in that, I think it's him. Now, I know the far right will not accept him 
One of the reasons is because he's not an authoritarian. <laughs> Isn't that deep, though? It's so true. I mean, look, Bernie Bernie definitely has authoritarian tendencies, at least the way that he speaks, the way that he kind of cast his vision and, and also just said, you know, forget you guys. I'm going. I'm doing this thing. You can come if you want to, right? So he's not an institutionalist. In fact, the whole point was to burn everything down and start, start fresh. So that's, that is really interesting. So if it's not a line, maybe it's a circle and those on the far right and far left are actually right next to each other in the circle. Yeah, I mean, you know, if Bernie had been the nominee, it would have been interesting because he could have subverted this in another way. And of course, we'll never know. Yeah, there's all the what it is. More effective. (laughs) Because, yeah, I mean, Biden may do his very, very best. He may do the best any human being could do and still fail because there's something baked into the system that still hasn't been dealt yeah. with. But yeah. l- l- let me say one other thing, uh, and then we can you know, keep going in other directions yeah. with this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think faith leaders have a really critical role, and I think every person of faith has a super critical role. Okay. And for all of the folks who have not you know, gotten drunk on the Trump authoritarian Kool-Aid, Folks like you and me, we have to reach out to them and say to them, hey, listen, we got to talk about race. It's part of our history. That's and it. you haven't been willing to talk about it yet. Are you willing to talk about it now? And we're going to have to be patient because it's like, you know, pressing the rewind button and going back to where we might have been five or 10 or 20 years ago. But mm-hmm. that's where they are now. And we're going to have to bring more people along. Mm-hmm. I, and there are some people who have been there and done that and they're tired of that. And I don't blame them. I understand. But that's my people work. Are going I'm to have good to with do that. This work. I feel like we have I'm called to it. And I'm very clear on that. I there was a there was a period where I was like, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm done, you know, but then I, ironically, then God started to call me right back into those spaces and, and I couldn't understand it at first, but I, now I understand it's for the right now. It's for, this is what the need is. There's several different needs, but you can't say that any one of them is more necessary than the other. Exactly right. You have to have your bridge builders. You have to have the people who stand on the bridge. And you also have to have people who are ministering among those who are the most beaten down because they have to be able and and ready to rise when it's time to begin to assume the mantle of agency and leadership that is going to be called on in that next phase. The next phase when we begin to actually create a more equitable and just world. Lisa Sharon, I just want to say, you know how it's sort of becoming traditional that you get on an airplane and the, and the flight attendant says, do we have any veterans here? And they raise their hand. Thank you for your service. And he, everyone claps. Well, I just want to say to you, Lisa Sharon, thank you for your service because oh, the work that you and others are doing, I'm not kidding. Like 50 years from now, it may be that the work you've done in these last few years and the work you do, and I, I hope I'm in some small way contributing, but there are a whole yeah. lot of other people who have very important roles in this. Mm-hmm. It may be that 50 years from now, there will not be a civil war <laughs> and people probably won't have the sense to do it, to look back and to say to people like you, thank you for your service, because we would have been in so much trouble if that work wasn't done. That patient, painstaking, explaining it for the 500th time to people <laughs> who have an amazing capacity to not get it. That, thank you sincerely, because you're, I mean, your book, your work, it's its so important. I just, wow. I, well, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Well, thank you, Brian. You honor me, and this is my podcast. This will be honoring you. 
but you know what I mean. I appreciate really that, mean though. It. I appreciate that, though. I, I take, I, I received that. I received that. So, brother, I also, I want to switch, though, into the question of white men. Because yeah. white men are why we are where we are right now. And, and I had this really, get this, I had a really profound aha moment, maybe about a month or two ago. I don't know, sometime in the last, in, a, in this last year. But it feels like really recent to me that it's just gotten like it's burning. Think about this. When was the last time in history that white men did not experience the world as them ruling it? Yes. Now, that doesn't mean that white men ruled the world, doesn't. It just means that wherever they were, they ruled. Yes. Because they, they had the guns and the steel and the germs, right? So, yes. Like, so, but, so where was the, when was the last time that white men were in the world and did not experience the world as a place where they should be ruling? I literally, I have to go all the way back to Greece, like pre-Greece, pre-Greek, yeah. you know, empire. Yeah. And so what you're talking about there is you're talking about almost 3,000 years, like yeah. about 3,000 years for about that long, white men have experienced themselves and also have literally written into philosophy, written into religion and theology, written into science, written into law, that they are created to rule everybody else. Yes. So what's so profound about this moment is that this is literally the first time in human history, at least in, I shouldn't say human history, in American history, let's, let's, let's break that down a bit, to in American history, that people, men of European descent are literally going to be in the minority within 15 years. Yeah. And within 15 years, the majority will be ruling. Yes. The majority will be not ruling, but, you know, leading like it's our vision that is going to win the political contest because of the rules they set up. Right. The majority. Exactly. Rules, now we're the majority. Right. So. Yes. So what is happening in the white man's soul right now and yeah. what needs to happen in order for them to begin to uh, to grasp this transition to, to transition well in a way that where they don't implode, where they don't commit suicide and where they don't commit mass murder. Right. Yes. Or bring us to civil war. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so much there, but I think your analysis is spot on. I think, mm. you know, for people who aren't white men, mm -hmm. I think if what, the way you frame that, it mm -hmm. is, is helpful to say mm -hmm. white men are being faced with a change in role that is so utterly unlike what they were raised with and for. For the last 3,000 years. Exactly right. I mean, that's generations. That's 20, 3,000 divided by 20. How many generations is that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. So this is baked in really, really deep. Gosh, I mean, there's so much we could say about this. Can I tell you a quick story? Yeah, yeah. So I live in Southwest Florida. And uh, in fact, this is a tangent, but... Just a couple of weeks ago, we had a Vote Common Good rally here, and we had about 75 Proud Boys show up with all their flags and big trucks and uh, all the rest to block the entrance to our event and then heckle and disrupt the event. Right. And so I, you know, these are my neighbors, right? These, uh, uh, these are 
proud, these were local proud boys who showed up for our event. So, you know, I've got a Biden sign in front of my house and I'm aware of, and I stood up and talked about how horrible I think Trump is and they honked and, you know, raised a certain finger and all the rest. So these are my neighbors. And one of my best friends, he's not a proud boy, but one of my best friends down here, I'm watching this all play out. So I'm just going to tell you a quick story, but I think the story conveys part of this thing. Yeah. So this friend of mine and I were out fishing, right? We, we both fish from kayaks. We're out in the middle of the Everglades, in the middle of nowhere, wow. when the Brett Kavanaugh hearings were going on. And from about, I don't know, 20 yards away, my friend shouts over to me, it's terrible what you guys did to Brett Kavanaugh. Wow. And I'm like, well, you know, I didn't do anything. You know? <laughs> and then he just starts yelling. He's a good man and you're tearing him up and you're ru- ruining his life. And he, he, all of his, it's his, all of his anxieties coming up. And at first I thought he was joking because he's so wound up. And then I realized this poor guy watches Fox News 24-7. Oh. And he sees me. I'm the only liberal he knows, right? I represent somebody who's not defending that kind of white male supremacy and white male privilege. And so he's yelling at me. And then I realized if I were close to him, I think he would hit me. Like it's that out of control. So I just try to de-escalate. I try to calm him down. And this is why you're fishing. Y'all are out this there. This is why fishing. we're fishing. <laughs> we're supposed to be mellow, right? My Enjoying goodness. the beauty. Yeah, yeah. So a month passes and uh, we didn't go fishing together. And then <laughs> I called him. I said, I'm going out if you want to join me. So he arrives early, paddles up to me in his kayak. And he comes right over to me. He says, Brian, I got to tell you something. Every single morning since we were together last, the first thought in my mind is how terrible I feel for the way I treated you. You are one of my best friends, man. I love you, he says. And he says, I can't believe how I treated you. Now, at that moment, I'm thinking, wow, this is cool. And then he goes, of course, it's not that I think I was wrong. In fact, and then he starts yelling at me again. Oh, my gosh. What? What? So I realized that that this is like this is why i think your question is so good that there that this is kicking up just as you know in ways that i have to try to imagine because it's never been my experience i look at my black and brown brothers and sisters and i think of the trauma that the generational trauma right Mm -hmm. well what we could say is this is like generational disruption of privilege and well it's not but it's that that's that's the point it's not generational it's like era, like it's literally yes. been an era, an era. Yeah. It's a disruption of an era. Yes. Because, and it's a, it's a multi-millennial era. Yes. yes. So there's literally no memory. Like I just, that's a, like white people don't have a memory of a time yes. when they haven't ruled. Yes. Wherever they were. That's right. So if you don't have that memory, then you just don't even know how to do it. And they're very afraid. The irony is they act so macho and they act so tough, but they're very, very afraid. And they yeah. don't know what the rules are. And they hate to be embarrassed by not knowing what the rules are. Uh. So they want to change the world so it fits in with the rules that they know. Which is and their rules. <laughs> it, which is their rules, exactly. Mm. And so I think it's, it's going to be messy. I, and I, you know what? What you said a few minutes ago, Lisa Sharon, that there's different work to do, right? Mm-hmm. There's and, and one of our problems among more progressive folks is that whatever work I'm doing feels like the most important work. And I get it's mad right. at other people yes. 
for not doing what I'm doing because exactly I feel like right. I need yeah. all the help. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that we on the more, you know, forward-leaning side of things have to do is we have to allow people to do different work because there's a lot of work that's important. Yeah. And I think there's a whole lot of us that are, are leaning into new territory. We're trying to help create sane and good rules for the new territory. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for us, it feels like a big distraction to have to go back to those other folks and explain why the new rules are necessary mm-hmm. and do all that stuff. It just seems like, why do we have to do this again? But we have to remember that, it, well, here's a way to think about it. There's a 14-year-old boy whose dad is a Trump supporter, and he's going to be a Trump supporter all his life unless there is some more progressive person who convinces him that he'll have a better life on our team than on his dad's team. And if all we're doing is attacking and insulting him for not getting it, well, he he hasn't even had a chance to get it yet. And this is his chance. And that's, to me, the important work that I think we have to do. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment, we find ourselves in full of protests, anger, and activist momentum. Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. Okay, so, Ryan, now I want to talk to you about spiritual formation. Because, you know, all that we talked about in that last, that last segment, especially the piece, well, I think the thing that's sticking for me is that little 14-year-old boy that you kind of left us with. Yes. And the reality that for him, his spiritual formation, per se, is, is revolving around his father. Yes. And he, he's loyal to his dad. He's loyal to his granddad. Yes. He's loyal to his people, right? To, yeah. And he's loyal to his freaking self. Like, you know what I mean? Because the, yeah. the freaking self actually says, well, we had it better back before there was the New Deal, right? Like yeah. when, when yeah. we didn't have to pay taxes and be responsible for all these lower people who were lower on the cast, right? Yeah. And all of that. And, and yet there is a shift that he's going to have to deal with. And so I guess my question to you as a white man, and now I'm talking to you as a white man. Yeah. You know, you have been through, you went through a major transformation in the early 2000s, Yeah, maybe even late 90s, actually. Yeah, it was late 90s. And you wrote your book, A New Kind of Christian, then. And then my the book that I just, oh my gosh, it literally just blew my mind was Everything Must Change. Mm. And you've been on this road and writing about this this transition road for such a long time. I wonder if you can actually say a word particularly for the white men who might be listening right yeah. now, like what, what are the, the essential components 
of or the practices that you have had to practice in order to make the transition from being the alpha dog to being a citizen, to being a human being in community with other human beings in the context of creation. Yeah. Actually in community with creation. Well, the first thing I want to say is that I, I hope nothing that I have said already seems dismissive toward white men because, you know, I grew up in this way, too. My gosh, my grandfather on my father's side was a full on patriarch. And, you know, my my dad and his siblings had to remember some pretty heavy beatings. Right. So there was this tough guy be in charge. And my dad never really went into too much depth for this with me. But, you know, when he decided not to go into his father's line of work, but instead to go to college and become a doctor, mm. he, he had to make a break with his dad to do that. So, mm. And the thing I'd say to Christian men is that everything Jesus said will make more sense to you if you are willing to go down this road, to even open your heart to the possibility that the white men in charge model of the universe that you've inherited is deeply, deeply flawed. Mm-hmm. Just for example, you think of this saying in the Gospels when Jesus said, don't think I've come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, he's not talking about a physical sword, because mm-hmm. then he says, because the conflict will be between a father and son and a mother and daughter. It's interesting. All of those conflicts are between the older generation and the younger generation. Mm. And I think what Jesus is saying is, I'm offering you a new vision of manhood. I'm I'm offering you a new vision of womanhood. And it Mm. means a break with the ways of our tradition. You have heard it said, but I say to you. My friend Richard Rohr said it like this, Lisa Sharon. Uh, Mm. He says, of course God had to be incarnated in a man through Christ. It was men who were the biggest part of the problem. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> um, and so, you know, if violent, arrogant, controlling, prideful, vengeful men are the problem, mm-hmm. then what God does for us in Christ is reveal the nature of God as nonviolent, kind, forgiving, compassionate, tender. And that shift in manhood and that shift in the racial dimensions of manhood, that becomes a part of the living out of the Christ-like life. Does that, does that make sense? It does. I just, maybe <laughs> my own womanist now is kind of coming out. And I, and I think that what I would say is that the fact that he was embodied in a male body made it easier for men who were in a patriarchal, a really brutal patriarchal system to accept the actual nature of God. But I wouldn't <laughs> say, and I don't think you're saying, that the actual actual nature of God is male. No, right? no. So, I, right. In fact, yeah. I'm glad you bring that up because I, yeah. I, the reason I quote Richard saying that is because I wouldn't say it in exactly the same way. <laughs> uh, uh, and But uh, I understand the point he's making, and I think it's a valid point, mm-hmm. that among the many wonderful things Jesus does is models a different, a different spirit of, and a different way of being a man. Now, yeah, that's right. That's and, right. And, and and I don't know which comes first, the the patriarchy or the whiteness. 
Mm-hmm. But I, what I would also say, or the Christianity, but here's mm-hmm. what I would say to my white Christian male friends. Mm-hmm. We have work to do on our whiteness, on our maleness, and on our Christianity. You know, it's this is fresh in my mind, Lisa Sharon, because I, I told you I'm, I just uh, today finished reading the audio book for my next book, which is called mm-hmm. Faith After Doubt. Yeah. In the last chapter of the book, I added something where I said, as I read through a previous, you know, uh, version of this book, a new insight hit me. And the insight was that what I doubted in my Christianity, what was at the heart of what I doubted was supremacy. And I realized that the version of Christianity that I was given was so supremacist. Yes, yes, at the core. Yes. And... The supremacy is European Christianity, so it's white. But what even happens, I was in Africa, and I was sitting stuck in an airport in Nairobi, and there was a Nigerian evangelist on the television in the airport saying that they were going to, that Nigerian Christians were going to dominate all of Africa. And I thought, wow, there's even, right? This version of Christianity even creates supremacy in Africa. So That's right. That's right. Christian supremacy. Mm-hmm. The radical nature of the life and message of Jesus mm-hmm. undermines supremacy. And mm-hmm. if people want a scripture to meditate on, Philippians 2. Yes. That, that as Jesus images God, wow. it's not a God who grasps power, but who, who wants to share power and yeah. who doesn't want to rule, but wants to serve. And I mean, the revolutionary dimension of the gospel in that way. Mm. Oh, it's such good news. And, and white men need it. Uh, maybe, I don't know if more than anybody, but sure as much as anybody right now. Well, it's funny because, you know, you're working on your book. I, I've just, I'm in the middle of mine. I should be finished in about two weeks. And I'm, oh Lord, please pray for me. Please pray. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord, pray. But, you know, in the very first chapter that I wrote, I wrote about my 10 times great grandmother, the reality that for her, she landed here from Ireland, actually, but she was Scotch-Irish. And my great, 10 times great-grandfather, who was from Senegal, and it was a mixed-race union. And their union produced a child whose body was, was in the middle of the fight of the very first race laws. Wow. And like literally in the first, I think it's 20 years of the race laws, her body absorbed the violence of those laws and and the, our entire family was shaped by them. But the thing that, that strikes me and the thing that I wanted to bring out here is that what you can see through those laws is you actually see the very first legal constructs of race in America also go in, they coincide with the very first legal constructs in America on, on the soil of gender. And mm. what you find is that those laws place white men above all else and they can do whatever they want with impunity and everybody else pays a penalty for what they do in relationship to white men or or each other but white men in those first laws have impunity they are not they're untouchable and and all the laws are shaped to benefit them financially and in terms of power and it Literally, we basically had that same situation all that time, all this time. So all the more reason why here now in America, 
that was 1682 when my 10 times great-grandmother landed here and great-grandfather was 1687. So all that time, <laughs> we're still like, we got Brett Kavanaugh last year because yes. of, of impunity, yes. right? Because yes. of impunity. And it's funny, like the way that white women were set up then to gain a sense of their power by partnering with white men to keep their power you know, they, they get benefits from helping white men to keep that power. Oh, my. Um, yes. You can see that in those first laws. And now we see it with Amy Coney Barrett. Yes. We literally see her benefiting from her protection of Trump. Yes. Or her justification of Trump. Okay, she got the Supreme Court. She's been a judge for three years. Three years, a judge. Yes. And she's replacing Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's just, you can't get more obvious than that um, in terms of and yet white evangelicals especially in my experience they just defend her to the death and there's there's really nothing to defend but what's really being honestly what i think is being defended is the order of things yes it's the order it's the it's the impunity it's the order of white women doing their job to protect white men's power and that is what must change. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. And and this is where this really becomes difficult. And mm-hmm. I, I have to remember, you know, the struggles I've been through. I mean, I'm I'm in my mid sixties, so I've been, you know, grappling with this for a long time, and I still have a long way to go. But you realize that when you try to be a good Christian and you're mm. white, and, and mm. even if you're a person of color, it happens in a different way, I know. Mm. But if you try to be a good Christian, then you are inducted into this supremacy of Christianity, mm-hmm. this special status of white people who, you know, mm. have run around the world making slaves and colonies of all the nations. Mm-hmm. And... Or now oh, missions, and, right? So you know, exactly, yeah. And the very fact that you wanted to be a good Christian means that you opened your heart to all this stuff. And when yeah. someone comes along like you or me and says, "Hey, look, there's a problem with it," it's very disrupting. I know, but I guess I just we have to hope and trust that something in people's hearts will make them say. I want to know the truth, even if it's uncomfortable, and even if it brings me into some very painful territory. So what can we, listeners, what can we be doing over the next two months, three, really, two and a half months until the inauguration, from now to the inauguration, to prepare our souls for the next leg, no matter who wins? Well, the, the one thing that we can't do is what I'm afraid we did do after uh, Barack Obama was elected, and mm-hmm. that is assume everything's fine now, mm-hmm. and let's go back to making money. Mm-hmm. I think what we're going to have to do is a significant number of us are going to have to say, we've got to start the work now that should have been done in the 1960s and wasn't, and should have been done, you know, every decade since and wasn't, and frankly, should have been done long before that. But let me say it like this. In fact, our mutual friend, uh, Michael Ray Matthews, said this to me once. He said, there is personal change, and then there is 
social or relational change, and then there is cultural change, and then there is legislative or political change. Right. Well, what I think has happened is on many, many levels, we have jumped to political or legislative change. We, we change the laws, but we haven't had change at those lower levels for enough people. Yeah, that's true. And Not enough people have and, been having the conversations. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think this is going to mean, let me give an example, that people who are beginning to get this, they're going to have to graciously but courageously disturb the status quo. Mm. Um, they're going to have to get people to read your book. Mm. They're going to have to, they're going to have to bring it to the book proposal for the Sunday school group. When they're going to have to go up to the preacher after the sermon and say, listen, I'm white, but, uh, you know, I couldn't listen to your sermon without thinking about how this would make my African-American friend feel if she had been sitting here. Can I just help you see how this would have made her feel? All of those conversations are going to have to happen. And you can be sure that the Jerry Falwell Juniors and Franklin Grahams and Robert Jeffersons and all of them, they're just going to double down on their ugly. They're going to become more white supremacists. We can't just be outraged about them. We have to go to the people who are at least open to some amount of conversation and have all the possible conversation we have, even though it's difficult. And one other thing I'll say is when you have those difficult decisions, people tell you you're being naughty. Mm. And you have to be around some other people who tell you, no, you're doing the work of the kingdom. You're doing the work of the gospel. Uh, this is plowing up the soil so new seeds can be planted. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. We promise we will not flood your inbox. And we invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first day of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.